Venous thromboembolism presenting as deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolism affects over 35,000 Canadians each year. Of those cases, about one quarter present as iliofemoral deep vein thrombosis. Iliofemoral DVT has a high risk of adverse outcomes and often standard anticoagulant therapy is not effective. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today we're speaking with Dr. David Liu, Clinical Associate Professor in the Department of Radiology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Dr. Liu and a team of experts have published evidence-based guidelines in the CMAJ for the diagnosis and management of iliofemoral deep vein thrombosis. So Dave, how do iliofemoral deep vein thromboses differ from distal or femoral popliteal DVT? Iliofemoral deep vein thrombosis really represents a unique subset of deep vein thrombosis that is of a significant clinical concern. Although both femoral popliteal and iliofemoral deep vein thromboses represent a spectrum of deep vein thrombosis presentation, the mechanics of iliofemoral DVT results in a significantly more and profound side effects and complications. If we go back to our venous anatomy lessons, the leg consists of a venous supply that is both deep and superficial. Venous outflow and control of hydrostatic pressure is regulated through the leg muscle contraction that squeezes the vein and the venous valves that then regulate pressure and push blood back towards the heart. The femoral popliteal system can develop collateralization in the case of residual clot without long-term hydrostatic pressure problems if the iliofemoral system is intact. However, if the iliofemoral system is compromised, venous outflow obstruction can occur. Depending on the severity of the venous outflow obstruction that can be associated with this type of presentation of deep vein thrombosis, it can result in complete arterial inflow compromise, leading to a profoundly ischemic leg. In severe conditions such as phlegmasia cerula dolens, this can be life-threatening. Profound chronic pelvic pain, extensive long-term varicosities, tissue breakdown, edema, blisters, and post-thrombotic syndrome may result if the collateralization pathway circumvents the valvular function in the setting of iliofemoral deep vein thrombosis. Now, you've mentioned some of the dangers associated with this type of DVT. Are there others? There certainly are. Uh, The dangers of iliofemoral DVT is that you have a chronic obstruction that results in valvular dysfunction and inflammation that becomes irreparable by the time it presents as signs and symptoms associated. When we look at the standard anticoagulation therapy, It works by definition on preventing further coagulation of blood, not necessarily breaking down clot. It had been demonstrated by a study from Bredin et al. uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine that only 6% of patients actually show complete lysis or clearance of the clot when on anticoagulation at 10 days. As a result, anticoagulation doesn't really directly address the clot burden. The body's natural thrombolytic, called plasminogen, is activated by tissue plasminogen activator, within the body to break down the acute clot. Natural TPA requires direct surface contact to break down the clot and blood flow to clear the clot, both of which are profoundly impeded in iliofemoral DVT. As a result of this situation, a profound inflammation occurs within the lower extremities, destroying the normal venous endothelium and also the valves that then result in markedly elevated hydrostatic pressures within the legs, potentially leading to irreparable damage within the lower extremity venous pump. The use of these novel strategies that have been outlined in the Intrepid Guideline really provide us with an opportunity to see this entire spectrum of disease 
and look at the opportunities for intervention, not only to mitigate the acute risks and dangers, but also the, the long-term complications that can result from chronic valvular obstruction. There are other guidelines out there on this. Why do you think that a Canadian guideline was needed? Uh, as you're aware, the American Heart Association, as well as the ACCP, have uh, specific areas uh, with respect to deep vein thrombosis management. One of the most important aspects of medical practice within Canada is the judicious use of resources within a socialized healthcare model. I think that when we looked at our systematic review of the other guidelines and also the literature, this major factor was lacking and it appeared that the algorithms were primarily designed to drive patients directly into tertiary care centers. However, upon further review of the literature, we concluded that the knowledge gaps with respect to the spectrum of deep vein thrombosis and in particular iliofemoral deep vein thrombosis, as well as the literature that was reviewed for the consensus guidelines in previous publications were not up to date or detailed enough. We really drew our inspiration for these guidelines from the practical implementation of the Ottawa Ankle Rules. Seeing this as a model in which appropriate resources can be applied in the appropriate situation, it was very clear to us that there needed to be a more concise and direct adjudication of therapeutic options for contemporary Canadian practitioners. Now, when you were writing these guidelines, who, who did you have in mind? What, what kind of clinicians did you have in mind? One of the challenging uh, issues with iliofemoral deep vein thrombosis is that it really spans the spectrum of practitioners from primary care practitioners to, uh, to specialized, healthcare, uh, specialized hospital-based practices. The initial guideline is really intended as guidance to the primary care physician and the first responder in the rapid assessment of venous disease. The key question to ask in this setting is to whether the patient's presentation may warrant referral or consideration for therapies beyond standard or traditional anticoagulation. The impetus for Intrepid was based on a series of young, otherwise healthy patients that myself and some of my vascular surgery colleagues had seen that had presented with severe complications six months to several years after their iliofemoral DVT event, at which time their severe post-thrombotic syndrome was debilitating and irreparable. These patients, if they were properly triaged therapy, would likely not have developed these long-term complications. And I think that's really where the role of the uh, primary care provider uh, is key in the determination of, of this patient and whether the patient should be receiving treatment or not. So let's start with the first step, diagnosing iliofemoral DVT. Although, as I mentioned, iliofemoral deep vein thrombosis represents a spectrum from calf to the iliofemoral system, really the diagnostic algorithm is the same as conventional DVT management. Clinical suspicion is always the first step, utilizing uh, scoring systems such as the well score or physical exam and, and maneuvers, but ultimately ultrasound remains the gold standard and should be the first diagnostic tool if there's a suspicion of any type of deep vein thrombosis. Supplemental blood tests such as D-dimers should not be used in the initial onset and other more aggressive or elaborate non-invasive tests such as CT and MRI should only be reserved for equivocal situations or when the ultrasound presents as normal with a high clinical suspicion of event. Recognition of the increasing risk associated with iliofemoral DVT is based upon the appropriate diagnosis from the ultrasound or the ancillary tests. Okay, now, you've already mentioned anticoagulation as the mainstay of treatment for DVT, but the guideline goes further to discuss the use of thrombus removal strategies and inferior vena cava filters. Can you tell us a little bit more about these techniques? 
Sure. Oftentimes, that's uh, the world that I live in, in a hospital-based uh, practice. But we realize that in the primary care setting, the transfer of care to a hospital often results in a loss of continuity for that particular patient until their discharge. We felt that with the Intrepid guidelines that it was important to cover the entire spectrum of management in order to provide perspective to all the key stakeholders. Many of the procedures that we do describe within the publication may be foreign to the primary care provider. We wanted to also provide some evidence and support for the use of these, uh, of these maneuvers or these therapies. For instance, inferior vena cava filters are, are oftentimes familiar uh, within the hospital setting, and they're small traps that are placed in the inferior vena cava through a minimally invasive technique to prevent clot propagation, primarily to minimize pulmonary embolic event. Although these filters can reduce the incidence of pulmonary emboli, controversy still remains as to whether they affect overall mortality associated with the venous thromboembolic event. The contemporary literature reveals this continued controversy in the use of IVC filters. However, the primary care provider plays a key role in ensuring that these filters are removed and managed when appropriate. Other more elaborate techniques such as chemical and mechanical thrombolysis can be performed within three weeks of initial presentation, which may include various devices that are used to either mechanically move or trap clot, as well as use of chemicals such as recombinant tissue plasminogen activator to rapidly break down propagating clot. This results in a significant decrease in the venous inflammation, remodeling, collateralization, uh, and most importantly, provides preservation of valvular function. These procedures are relatively low risk, but have been on the fringe for a number of years. The initial reports of these types of procedures date back to the early 1990s. However, there has been a more recent resurgence of interest within the academic and science community due to the recognition of the profound effects of venous disease as they have on the individual as well as the cost of society. Using clot removal and reduction strategies such as these endovenous mechanical and pharmacomechanical techniques described results in a significant improvement in the downstream symptoms and side effects associated with DVT and in particular post-thrombotic syndrome. These have an effect on the primary care provider as well as these downstream effects are very difficult to manage and are, are chronic and quite expensive to society as well as the individual. The determination of the appropriateness of referral for consideration for this type of treatment lies uh, squarely in the hands of the primary care provider. In the guideline, um, you put patients with cancer sort of in a different category and have some specific recommendations for this group of patients. What should doctors do differently with this group? Patients that are undergoing their cancer journey are very unique, both in terms of physiology as well as their condition. Patients with cancers have increased clotting risk. It's been well documented in the literature that cancer patients are considered hypercoagulable. In addition, bleeding risk of the cancer itself, such as in the setting of METs to the brain or tumor propagation, as well as chemotherapy, pose a very complicated scenario. Ultimately, these patients would be best served to be assessed through a formal hematologic consultation. However, I think the recognition of this being a unique subset and population of patients afflicted with venothrombotic events uh, is, once again, a critical first step. So far, you've mentioned post-thrombotic syndrome a number of times. Can you tell us your concerns around this syndrome and, and how it should be prevented, perhaps, and treated? I think post-thrombotic syndrome is oftentimes ignored in the continuum of DVT management. In patients with iliofemoral deep vein thrombosis, up to 70% of patients may present with some type of post-thrombotic syndrome, 
And the difficulty is that it presents six months to three years after the initial event. The condition can be reduced with proper intervention. Uh, the signs and symptoms are fairly well defined in PTS in varying degrees of severity with the symptoms including pain, crampiness, heaviness, paresthesia and pruritus. And the signs can be varied uh, and ultimately may be thought of as an arterial obstruction but uh, oftentimes as venous in origin, especially if patient has a DVT. Uh, signs such as pretibial edema, skin induration, hyperpigmentation, pain for calf compression, uh, venous ectasias, redness, or even venous ulcers can present. The spectrum of PTS is really uh, can be mild to severe, but ultimately we have to look at it in terms of the context of the individual or in terms of the patient as to whether the intervention may be warranted given the potential risks and benefits. I know that this is a, a very long and thorough guideline. But if you could sort of distill it down to one key message for physicians to take into clinical practice, what, what would that one message be? I think the most important take-home message is that the venous system, although is complicated, and isn't something that we were really taught well in medical school, there have been a lot of great strides in, in terms of the understanding of pathophysiology of the disease and conditions related with the venous system. Venous disease should be recognized as a real disease state, for when it's properly diagnosed, it can be really treated effectively. Specifically, in the setting of these guidelines, learning to recognize the spectrum of deep vein thrombosis presentation and differentiating the patient population is a critical first step in identifying individuals that may benefit from these additional therapies. One of the most important things that I think comes out of these guidelines is an understanding that there is a continuum of care and a spectrum of disease. It's really to be honest, I really don't like thinking of myself as operating within a tertiary or a secondary facility because ultimately the triaging to management is part of that, that patient journey. So I kind of look at it on a patient-centered approach. I thank you for joining me today, and I do hope that our listeners will take a look at the guidelines. Well, thank you again for the opportunity, and we certainly hope that these guidelines will help provide some perspective as to not only the recognition, but also the spectrum of care that can be provided for these patients. I've been speaking with Dr. David Liu, Clinical Associate Professor in the Department of Radiology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. To read the full guideline for the diagnosis and management of iliofemoral DVT, visit cmaj.ca.